Not to us, Lord, not to us, but your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does, not, he does, not what, he does whatever pleases him, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. And he will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, to the maker, uh, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The other day we watched the film Divergent. It's the story of a post-apocalyptic society where people are divided into five factions. You've got the Amity faction, who are kind and grow the food for everyone else. There's the Abnegation faction, who are selfless and are entrusted with the job of government. The Candor faction are honest and so administer justice. Dauntless are fearless and are responsible for enforcing the law. And Erudite are the bookish ones who engage in research and knowledge. Everyone watching the film agreed that I belonged in the erudite faction. In the film, when young people reach a certain age, they are all given a choice as to which faction they want to join. And they make that irreversible decision in a public ceremony. 80% simply stay in the faction in which they grew up. The film vividly portrays the grief of parents whose children choose, for whatever reason, to join a different faction. For them, in that society, it means losing all contact with their children because the motto of that society is faction before blood. Today, we've celebrated the promotion of children and young people to new classes in our Sunday club and we've honoured those who teach them, recognising the valuable work that they do in helping us disciple our children. I choose those words deliberately. It's our goal as a church to work with parents to build children up in their understanding of the faith. So that by the grace of God, the teaching of the church and the example of those of us who are parents, they may be encouraged and enabled to choose to adopt our faith for themselves when the time comes. Those of us who are parents... Those of us who are grandparents don't delegate the task of discipling our children to those who teach them on a Sunday morning. Teachers in Sunday Club can only reinforce and support the work we do as parents. A recent book written by a guy called Vern Bengston, published by Oxford University Press, looks at this subject. It's entitled Families and Faith. It researches how faith is passed on from one generation to the next, or not. It's a research project that began in the United States back in 1970, covers four generations, and includes 3,500 participants. One family they interviewed back in 1970 was Irene Turner. She was 17. She was firmly committed to her faith, 
as her mother had been before her and her grandmother before that. Thirty years later, she was interviewed again. She was still active in a Baptist church and added, God is the center of my life. But her daughter, born in 1980, mid-twenties at the time, says, I don't have any faith right now. She said that when growing up, she went to church often, she participated in youth groups, she followed in the family's Baptist tradition. But when she went to college, she began to think that what her church defined as sin was really quite arbitrary. And she looked at the lifestyle being lived by people in the church and thought, they say they believe all this, yet they live like that. And that discrepancy got to her. And she said, I have have no intention of following in my parents' footsteps faith at the moment, though her family say they continue to pray for her every day. That's a reminder to us that all of us are engaged in the task of discipling our children. Because they will look at us as a church and see, is there integrity there? Do these people practice what they preach? They talk about believing in Jesus, they talk about living for God, for God being the most important thing in our lives. When they look at us, do they see that? When they look at us, do they see a community of love and grace and acceptance and forgiveness and righteousness? Or do they see a church that actually preaches one thing and practices another. The task of faithing, passing the faith down from one generation to the next is one which we all share in together. Parents, Sunday club teachers, and the church as a whole alike. The study examining how faith passes down from one generation to the next found that there is a big emphasis on the strength of parental influence. Recognising as well that grandparents play an increasingly important role as they take an ever greater share of responsibility for childcare. The level of parental influence over the choices children make about faith has remained consistent since 1970 onwards. On average, about 60% of children adopt the faith of their parents or follow their parents in a lack of faith. But there are important factors that can influence that one way or another. And one significant factor is the strength of the bond between family and church. A bland faith is harder to pass on. People who are very committed to their faith tend to pass that on towards their children. People who are very committed to having no faith at all tend to pass that on to their children. But people who say, well, you can take it or leave it, children find it easy to leave it. There is not so much that is attractive or transferable about a lukewarm faith. Blunt instrument it may be, but one of the indicators of the strength of commitment is that of church attendance. If parents attend church on a weekly basis, there is a 59% likelihood that their children will adopt their faith. If that of church attendance drops to once a month or less, the likelihood of children adopting that faith for themselves drops to 31%. Less than one in three. It sends out a significant and a challenging message. It's got profound implications for us in the UK, where the trend over recent years has been for regular church attendance to be measured in terms of once a month rather than twice a week. We may disagree with the idea that church attendance can be seen as a measure of commitment, but if church doesn't seem important to us, it's not necessarily going to appear important to our children automatically. One of the things church does is develop a network of supportive relationships. 
In teenage years, children become increasingly independent of us as parents. And at that time, peer pressure plays an increasingly significant part on their beliefs and their choices. If young people don't have a strong network of friends supporting and affirming their faith, that can make it harder to stay on the rails. Though those who manage to sustain their faith in a relatively isolated environment can have a stronger faith for their experience. But part of what a church does is create a sense of belonging. I'm not in this by myself. There are others who share this faith with me. It was tremendous to see so many children and young people up on the platform together. Why else is church important? Well, I'm not called to to stand here and preach the results of sociological studies. I am called to stand here and preach the word of God. And Psalm 115 has things to say to us about passing faith on from one generation to the next. It's a psalm written in a context where people are feeling a bit beleaguered as followers of God. The nations are scornfully asking, where is their God? What's the value of their faith? The surrounding nations worship idols of silver and gold whose value can be measured in terms of hard cash. And today we live in an increasingly aggressive secular society which is still very much in love with materialism, defined by one dictionary as a preoccupation with or emphasis on material objects, comforts and considerations, with a disinterest in or rejection of spiritual, intellectual or cultural values. Yep, that pretty much sums up where we are in the UK today. And the church? Where does the church come in? The church stands up and says, that is not what life is all about. Life is about more than material considerations. We are worth more than that. Life is about living for the one who made heaven and earth and who's entrusted the earth to our care. Psalm 115, 6 says, The highest heavens belong to our God, but the earth, the earth he has given to us. Right at the beginning of the Bible, it talks about God making us in his image, telling us to fill the earth and subdue it. Under God, we are responsible for the governance of this world. And when we worship material things, rather than the God who made all things, this world and its people suffer, as we see so very clearly in the news today. When so many people don't give God a second thought because they're wrapped up in materialism, it falls to the church to assert the reality of the God who made all things, our value and importance in his sight, to declare he is the one who we live for. Under him we have responsibility for the world and we praise him as the one whom life is all about. As the psalmist says in verse 17, it's not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down into silence, but we, we extol the Lord now and forever. Worship is at the centre of our identity of God's people. Those who ignore the Lord are destined for death. Those of us who extol the Lord will be able to do so forever because we know that he gives us not just life here and now, but eternal life. And as the church, it's our calling to model what it means to be human beings made in the image of God. People who live in a network of loving, committed, supportive relationships with each other, where we are free to do as we choose, but because God's love governs our hearts, we freely choose to serve him and one another. When we understand what God is like, that affects who we are and how we live. I accept the church has a long way to go towards fulfilling that mandate, but it is our calling to live as free people made in the image of God who choose to serve because God's love 
governs our lives. And it can't be an optional extra when it comes to expressing our faith to live like that because we are called to reflect the image of God who is like that in his own nature. Faith is about trusting God. There is no verb to faith corresponding to the noun. If you want to express faith in God, you do it by trusting God. And the psalm has a lot to say about trusting God. House of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help of shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. And as we all trust in the Lord, correspondingly we find his blessing. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. And one of the reasons why I chose to preach on this time this morning is because there are those who see that that reference to small and great refers to the generations. It's young and old alike. I was so pleased to have Ryan and Zach reading the, doing the reading this morning. It expresses that, small and great, little and large, young and old, across the generations. We are called to trust the Lord, young and old alike, and all of us finding God's blessing, young and old alike, as we do so. And that brings me back to the second point in Vern Bengston's book, a second factor which influences the extent to which children will follow in the faith of their parents, and that factor is strong role modelling. Coming to church is one thing, even more importantly is the question about whether our faith makes a difference to who we are and how we live outside of a Sunday morning and our regular church commitments. And that's not just about being witnesses to our children, that's about being witnesses to the outside world as well. Beyond church attendance, how can people see that our faith is important to us? How do we articulate it in terms of what we say? How do we express it in terms of how we live? It needs to be genuine. It needs to be at the core of who we are. If faith is just something we use to try and influence our children or impress other people, they're going to see through that pretty rapidly. Whatever else our children might be able to say about us, however grudgingly they might acknowledge it, can they look at our lives and see that we trust God and we live as those who believe that God is our help and shield? If we can see that in our families and as a church, we would have gone a long way to playing our part. We need to remember that at the end of the day, the relationships we model are because we are made in the image of God are relationships that are free from all kinds of coercion. If people choose to go a different way, we love them just the same. And this is a third factor highlighted in Bengston's study. Family closeness and emotional bonding plays a vital role in encouraging children to follow parents on the path of faith. Children respond best to parents who are unconditionally supportive, who provide consistent role modelling of Christian lifestyle, who don't force their beliefs on their children. Instead, allowing them the freedom to choose may help in their eventually deciding to choose to adopt our faith or in coming back at a later stage. The prodigals are loved no less, even if they make decisions that grieve us. Based on himself, the author of the book, was raised in a strongly Christian home, but lost his faith when he went to graduate school, where most of his classmates were not religious and neither were their parents. And suddenly, for the first time, he started to feel as if his family, with its strong Christian faith passed down from one generation to the next, was perhaps a bit weird, was how he felt. And so he moved away from evangelical fundamentalism 
to moderate Presbyterianism, and from there, to his family's grief, to sceptical unbelief. He did not regain his faith until his mid-sixties, after his mother had died, when he said he wandered into a church service. He was overwhelmed by the music and the beauty, and bowled over by recollections and revelations, surprised by joy. And he came back. These days, he says, I'm in church every Sunday, singing in the choir. Every Thursday, I'm there at noon Bible study. They put me on the church governing body, so I'm spending even more time there. Never stop praying for children. We lay the foundations when they're young about what they will do when they're older. But disconcertingly and challenging as well, Bainston argues that a good relationship with one's father is particularly important for developing your own relationship with God as one's heavenly father. And where fathers are remote or authoritarian, that has a profoundly negative impact on faith. Having a distant relationship with one's father is far more damaging to faith than having a distant relationship with one's mother. And that puts a huge responsibility on those of us who are fathers in terms of the quality of emotional relationships we develop with our children and in terms of the kind of faith they may absorb from us through that emotional closeness. Faith needs to be caught as well as taught. And it's caught well from fathers if the emotional closeness is there. Psalm 115 contains a blessing. In verse 14 it says, May the Lord make you increase, you and your children. It's a verse that could be read in a variety of ways. One commentator uses it as a possible indication that the psalm was written in a context where God's people were a demoralised minority. May the Lord make you increase. May you find confidence, the freedom to flourish, the freedom to grow in confidence and in faith and in numbers. On the other hand, it could be a mandate to the creation, a reference to the creation mandate, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Now the last thing the world needs at the moment is more babies being born. But the, church does need, the world does need the church to grow and fulfil its mandate of acting out our role of modelling what it means to care for the world as those who are made in the image of God. To grow in our committed relationships with each other where freedom is expressed in loving service. We need to grow into recognising that is at the core of identity as God's people. But also, definitely on my agenda, is church growth across the generations. I've been in ministry for nearly 30 years. And it continues to grieve me that there have been 30 years of decline in the church in the UK. So I take those words as a prayer that God would restore and increase his people across the generations, young and old alike. The older people, because the clock is ticking before they'll have to appear before God and give an account of their lives. The younger people, because without younger people coming to faith in 30 years, how many people will be sitting here in church on a Sunday morning when we are gone? The particular challenge to Brighton Road is that over the past four years we have seen 35 people come into membership. And again, membership is only a very rough index about how a church is doing in terms of people coming to faith. 35 years coming into membership. That's something to celebrate, I think. But only 11 of those have been baptisms. In that time when 35 people have come in, 19 people have died, 39 others 
have left or moved away, giving a net reduction in membership of 23. All the time as church, you need to be growing fast just to keep in pace with people who die or move on or leave. It's a challenge for us. The good news is, as you heard, next Sunday night we do have a baptism service when two people, one old and one young, will be baptised. God is increasing the church across the generations. But I'm mindful that because of the average age of our congregation in 20 years' time, a significant proportion of us will be in glory. So if the church is to grow, we do need to see more and more younger people coming to faith. Of those 35 new members, probably only seven are under the age of 25. So my prayer for Brighton Road is that the Lord will make us increase across the entire age range, both us and our children, young and old alike. But finally, those of us here who are grandparents and parents will want to make that blessing personal to ourselves. Lord, may we and our children grow. May we and our children flourish. May we and our children increase in faith and in commitment and in love and in finding fulfilment in the role that you assign to us and our children and our grandchildren in your world. Lord, young and old alike, may we find your blessing, may we trust in you, and may we flourish as people who live for God, in the sight of God. Let's pray together. Lord, those of us who have children and grandchildren, we commit them to you. We thank you for those who are walking in the faith. We pray for those who are not. And we place them in your hands. Protect them. And bring them to that point in their lives, that place, where they turn around and find that you've been following them all along. And enable them to find your welcome and a fresh grace in you. Lord, where we're conscious that we have let them down, we're sorry. Forgive us. Some things we can't put right. Give us grace, Lord. If things are broken, would you mend them? If there are things we need to apologise for, give us the, the opportunity and the words to do so. And if it's not right, we pray that you would give us your healing and them, independently of what can be said. And some of us, Lord, we've done everything that we could or should have done and still our children have not chosen to follow us. And that grieves us as well. But hear our prayers for them. 
Help us in our relationships with them and with others and with each other to live as people who are free but who choose to serve because we live lives of love. And help us as we live that way to be good witnesses to those around and those who come after us. Lord, may your people increase and flourish and grow as we find your blessing and as we trust in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.